193 in the Red Bibles under your seat. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 6. So page 993, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of King and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is God's word. We all feel like the world's not what it should be, and we are not what we should be. That's because a God of love and power created this world to be a place that reflected his goodness, glory, and beauty. He brought humanity into being to be his companions and to partner with him in extending the goodness of his reign, stewarding his world to greater levels of wonder and glory. Under the reign of God, all things flourish and humans cooperate with God for his glory in the life of the have we lived up to that purpose? Sadly, no. We chose to assert our own wishes onto God's world, rejecting his reign in favor of the false freedom of ruling ourselves. We try to have the good without its source and are alienated from both. When the reign of God is pushed out, the reign of death and hell moves in from the large-scale evils of genocide and slavery to the pride and greed those evils come from. The good news is that God loves the world more than we do, 
and he is committed to making creation new by restoring his reign of goodness, glory, and beauty. To do it, something must be done about human evil so that hell can be banished and humans restored to what they were meant to be. This is what is meant by the judgment of God. But how will our evil be judged without us suffering the judgment? On our own, we can't avoid it. But out of his generous grace, God has done what must be done to rescue us and restore us to our purpose of living for the glory of God in the life of the world. He has done this by becoming one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life of servanthood and love that we were designed to live. And when Jesus gave his life on the cross, God poured on him the judgment for the evil we participated in so that we could be made right with God. Then, when Jesus rose from the dead, the return of God's reign began and the power for a new way of life was unleashed by his spirit. What does that mean for us? That means that all people can now turn away from self-rule and be restored to God and to their purpose. By trusting in the work of Jesus, we receive forgiveness and join with local communities of God's people committed to living for the glory of God in the life of the world. Together, we practice the way of God's kingdom and announce the good news of his grace to everyone we know until the day when he completes his work and all his people are resurrected into the life of God's restored Glad to be with you here this morning. What you just saw is a gospel summary that the elders and some of the staff came up with to sort of condense what we talked about last week. We'll probably show it a couple more Sundays this summer just to make sure that, that most of us see it at least once or maybe a couple times. Summer's sort of a, a season of sporadic attendance, so we want to make sure that we're, we're sort of exposing ourselves to the gospel and to, to a refresher e- each week. So basically what we wanted to do is we wanted to come up with a way of visualizing the gospel that made sense of both the kingdom and the cross. So what we talked about last week, and hopefully it's an encouragement to you and, and uh, something to help you sort of feel equipped, not only to preach the gospel to those who don't already know it, but also to preach the gospel to yourself and to your brothers and sisters in Christ who are maybe in our community of Trinity. So today we continue in Gospel in Life, a series that we're doing to sort of applying the gospel to the nuts and bolts of living in, in our cultural moment. And uh, last week I had mentioned that we're going to talk about money today, and I fully expected to be talking to an empty room. So thank you for showing up. You know, typically I think there's a lot of, like, you know, associations with preachers preaching out b- about money, and it's deeply shaming. And so I'm proud of all of you for having shown up to the money sermon. That's awesome. So um, I think when, when most of us think about our relationship to money and God's expectations for us when it comes to, to money, I think... A lot of us feel like we need to change, but we're not really sure what that would even look like. Most of us don't feel equipped to, to figure out what, what, what does it even mean that, that our, the way we relate to money and resources is shaped by the gospel. What does that actually mean? I think for most of us, we're, we're not actually sure how to answer that. Some of us are set in our ways, and we don't want to be told what to do with our money. Many of us are just tired of being shamed from the pulpit. But I think a, a typical experience for us as Americans is that we don't really feel in control of our money. Really, we sort of feel like money is in control of us. And that's especially true here in the United States for reasons we'll get into. But today we'll be looking at how the gospel challenges that 
how through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus actually frees us from the sort of psychological control that money and resources has over us. Instead, money goes from being something that controls us to being sort of a tool of our own. It goes from our master to our servant as a result of the gospel. So we'll be looking at three ways that that takes place and sort of walking through this passage out of 1 Timothy. So first, what ends up happening through the gospel is that if money is no longer our master, then because of the gospel, it's no longer our security. So in the past few years, there have been these massive changes that have happened to the American middle class. So for a long, long time, it, it was typical that, that if you made a middle class income, you could expect a certain kind of life. There was a 2010 um, study done by the, the Commerce Department, and basically they, 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 they said for most middle class people up until very recent years, they could expect to uh, own a home. They could expect to at least be close to making enough money to send all their kids to college. They, they could expect a car for each adult, health security in general, retirement security. And for most of us, those are still things that we sort of expect out of life. They're things that we very much want, and they're all very good things, but they're things that are becoming harder and harder to achieve in our culture. More and more writers are talking about what they call the financial fragility of the middle class, the financial fragility of the middle class. To illustrate this, what, what they recently found is that 40% of American, 47% of Americans right now would not be able to handle a $400 emergency expense. That they would be selling items of their own, they'd be tapping into friends and family in order to make a $400 emergency expense. They're, they're financially fragile. Some of the reasons for this might be that wages have not really kept up with rising costs in healthcare and transportation and housing. There's lots of folks who are earning what at one point was a middle-class income, but, but the typical things that you'd associate with the middle class, that home ownership, the car for each adult, those things are becoming more and more inaccessible. And essentially what's happening is that there's a whole bunch of people who sort of have these expectations of life, but at the same time, those expectations are just constantly just out of reach. And so what do they do? Well, they, they either sort of content themselves with, with where they're at, or what's actually happening way more is folks will just take on more and more debt in order to still have those things because they're so close, right? And they, that's their expectation for life. I've got to have those, those things. It's security. And so what ends up happening is like in reaching for that next rung on the ladder, they take on all this extra debt, all these extra costs, so that when they actually get the home, get the additional car or, or whatever, they bring even more debt into it. And so the, the insecurity just continues. It just continues at a higher standard of living. So there's more and more people who are, who are outwardly living lives at this standard of living that, that looks comfortable, that looks secure, when in actuality what's going on is that many of them may not be able to handle a $400 emergency expense. Financial fragility is taking over. And all of this is happening in the context of the American dream, in the context of American marketing, in the context of sort of our consumer society. And so we're still being inundated by this constant reminder that there's, there's more that we could have, there's more that could make us feel safe and secure. And so inwardly, we're constantly living with this sense of everything I have could fall apart in the blink of an eye. We are deeply insecure. It's actually our search for financial security that in some cases is leading us to be so vulnerable. 
here's the hard truth. Even if we actually became financially secure, even if all the cultural things that are going on that make that so hard, let's say all those go away. Even if we were actually able to get the same standard of living, the same security that was once available to us, the hard truth is that life will still be empty. Many of us are, are, are confronted with, with the realities of, of death and the realities of violence and the realities of, of terrible life events through, through social media, through the 24-hour news cycle. We, our minds are filled with all the ways that our lives could go very wrong, even through no fault of our own. And so even if we find that financial security, we're still in this place of feeling like almost as though we're in a, in a, a crisis moment. In fact, there have been recent studies done um, where psychologists have sort of measured the, the psychological state of average Americans, and what they're actually finding is that many of us are operating in panic mode all the time. I mean, the, the sort of fight-or-flight instinct is constantly operating within us. The vast majority of Americans are, are, are like, living. I mean, they're just, like, sipping coffee or whatever at, at Hansa. But inwardly, what's actually going on is, is that they're having this, like, fight or flight instinct, it's a low level fight or flight instinct. We all sense our deep insecurity. Worry is taking over. We are never safe enough, never comfortable enough. And so when everything around us is telling us that the way to, to resolve that is through money and resources, what do we end up doing? We just constantly try to fight for more financial security. And our problem is actually way, way deeper. Paul puts this really interestingly in, in this passage in 1 Timothy. He says, those who desire to be rich, which again, today we're talking about money, resources, all of that, the financial security, those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, so like a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Here's what, what I really want us to see. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the, the faith and pierced themselves with many pains, meaning that it's through this desire that folks are piercing themselves with hurts. That, that it's not leading to satisfaction, it's not leading to a sense of contentment, it's leading to fight or flight instincts all the time. Brushing our teeth, fight or flight, like just constant low-level panic that's largely invisible. When money is our security, it becomes a pathback. That's why Paul's words here in 1 Timothy sound so alien to us. Like the state of mind that he describes it just seems inaccessible. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world. We can't take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. I think for at least when I read that, I just don't even know how I would arrive at that state of mind. And yet this is a theme in Paul. It shows up in, in, in his other writings, this, this sort of importance of contentment in his life. Or, or really, I think he would say it's a skill. That contentment for him is a skill. We know from, from what's been written about Paul's life that he, he wasn't just talking a big game. I, I mean, this guy knew how to go off of bread and water. He was imprisoned. In the middle of being imprisoned, he would, like, sing songs and, like, chat with his prison mate and, like, convert the guard. And just, like, I mean, he, he just, wherever he was, he had this skill of contentment. And I just know, speaking from my own experience as an average American, I just don't even know how you'd arrive at that. Because he's so adaptable. He, he, 
it's not as explicit in this passage, so I, I want to quote another passage. Elsewhere in his letter to the Christians in, in the city of Philippi, he says, I've learned that in whatever situation I'm in, I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So what's the secret? He says, I can do all things. He's not talking about leaping into flight off of the roof of buildings. He's saying, I can, do, I, I can thrive under all circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That this skill of contentment for Paul has everything to do with who he is in Christ and what he has in Christ. So now, Sean Jacquez, our deacon of finance, will give me a talking to if I didn't emphasize this. Guys, a savings account isn't bad. I'm not saying that. Like, you know, the retirement fund, it's not bad. These are wise things. Getting out of debt, it's very, very wise. So don't hear me saying that those things aren't wise. What I'm saying is this, that life is unpredictable. It is incomprehensible. Do your work to be wise with what God is giving you, but what if you never get to the point that you want to be at? What if your savings account never actually arrives at that place where you're secure? What if you never actually get out of debt? Does your life just never begin? Instead, Paul was, was able to discover security in Christ. The, the, the message of the gospel is that in Christ, the most important things have been resolved. In Christ, the most important things have been resolved. Our, our security is no longer wrapped up in this brief time, right? It's wrapped up in the fact that God is restoring all things in Christ, that all things are going to be made new, and that by his grace alone, we have a share in the new creation. And so for Paul, he, he, he had this ability to, to not be so caught up in life and its challenges and its struggles. If our security is in money, then we will only be as secure as money can make us. If our security is in money, we will only be as secure as money can make us. Money can't make us happy. Life is complicated. But if our security is in Christ, we will be as secure as Christ can make us. Full, meaningful life has been guaranteed to us in the cross. So I think what changes about, about our life, if the gospel is true, it means that we don't have to wait until our savings are bolstered up to live. We don't have to have a particular income to live. It means that even while things are unpredictable, even while things are falling apart, even when we are like literally on the verge of panic, something is still certain. It is certain that though you may be temporarily living in want, an inheritance is coming in Christ. You are rich in him, so we are freed to live like we have nothing to lose, even when our checking account is like in double digits. Even when we are financially fed, that we feel in want, in a deeper way than we ever have before, we are freed to live in Christ. Secondly, when money is no longer our master, it is no longer our identity. So I was reading an article by a historian named Eli Cook. It, it, it was this fascinating little article. It, he basically just traces this history in, in America about human worth, and sort of how we think of human worth and what it is to be a human and how we think of sort of the 
Yeah, so I want to share some of what I read in the article. So he tells this interesting story about Alexander Hamilton. Most of you were introduced to Alexander Hamilton through a musical theater play. Um, but he was actually the Secretary of the Treasury in our, in our country. I'm kidding, obviously, history class prior. But the reason we care is because of the musical. So anyway, so like, so at one point, Alexander Hamilton, he wanted to collect a bunch of data on manufacturing. In, in this is, I think, 1791. He had become the Secretary of the Treasury, and he basically wanted to create a measure of how well American society was doing. And so what did he do? He wanted to find indicators, like ways of indicating to him how well the society was doing. And so he did something that was actually very novel at the time. He used economic indicators. So he went out to all these farms, these workshops, these different families, and he, he started collecting data about how much income they bring in. Right? Like, how much money are you making? That's what he was going to use to measure how well the society is doing. And what's interesting is that the, the responses he got were really anemic. I mean, most people didn't even want to answer the question. A lot of them didn't understand why he was asking it, which is fascinating to me. Like, for, for, for these workshops and these farms and everything, like, the amount of financial income they brought in was almost entirely irrelevant to how well they were doing far as they, they were concerned. And, and yet, for, for me, that it was like their response is so confusing, but it comes down to it that Americans at that time didn't think money alone was an accurate measure of how well society was doing. So at that time, ways that you would measure how well society was doing, you'd look at literacy, you'd look at like education maybe, or connections, land. It was kind of more aristocratic. I'm not saying that's a better way of doing it, but I'm saying that it had, it had to do with sort of human flourishing. Like, were you connected? Were you literate? Were you educated or whatever? It came down to, to different measures of, of how society is doing. Instead, a lot of it had to do with, like, what we call mental health. And for, for most scholars at the time, if they wanted to see how society was doing, they'd ask, well, are the people content? But Hamilton was start, sort of starting to change things. It turns out he, he, turns out he was on to something because by the 1850s, this was totally the norm, like measuring the worth of a society, the, the health of a society by money. So manufacturing and industry was booming. The, the abolition of slavery was being pushed forward, and a lot was changing economically here in the country. And so a new way of measuring the health of a society emerged, and it had to do with what sorts of funds a society was producing. A society, in other words, was only as healthy as its economy. So here's some interesting ways you see that, that playing out. So during the whole debates about the abolition of slavery, this one guy came out, the North had already abolished it, obviously. This guy named Hinton Helper came out with a book, and he wanted to show that the North is really better than the South. Guess what his sole argument was? It wasn't that people are flourishing more in the North. It wasn't that people are more mentally healthy in the North came down for him to that the North was making more money. And that was his big argument. The North is better than the South because it's making more money. There, somewhere down the line, this got extended to people. And so you start right around the, the turn of the century, you start hearing people talk about, like, I have a certain worth. And they didn't mean, like, their innate value as a human person. They meant their, their net worth, right? You, you start hearing people saying, oh, that person's doing well for themselves. And when they said that, they didn't mean they were mentally healthy or content or living lives connected to a community. They meant they had a lot of money. They're doing well. They have a lot of money. 
This is sort of a darkly humorous example, but in 1910, the New York Times ran an article. Here's the name of the article. What the baby is worth as a national asset. Last year's crop reached a value estimated at $6,960,000,000. They literally refer to all the babies born in 1909 as last year's crop. As a commodity. Like, and the whole article is talking about, I mean, at, at, at birth, the baby's probably worth about $296. And what you can expect is to get a return of about $2,900. But I'm, I'm literally, like, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, but those numbers, I like literally talking about returns and investment. We're talking about a baby. And yet that's where the nation was going. So that's obviously like a, a darkly comedic example. But I think it's illustrating a very, very deep truth. That we became what we consumed. Our worth became about our utility. We'll talk about this before in other sermons. That we are worth our utility. We are worth what we consume. And so what's begun to happen? Well, this has had a, a psychological effect on us. Our income, our standard of living, our money, our access to different goods, it's literally become a way of measuring our value. So that what we have, like let's say we're struggling financially, we don't just struggle financially, we have a deep sense of shame and self-worth, right? Like, I'm not this well off, therefore there's something wrong with me. I'm worth less. Money has become our identity. And it's not just the sort of floating in the air thing. It's like a cultural shift that took place over the course of 200 years, changing our culture to literally constantly tell us you are worth what you make. You are worth what you have. This isn't accidental. It's like a, a thing that's all around us that we're all just sort of unconsciously being currented away in. Money has become our identity. Resources have become our identity. So one writer actually coins a term. He calls it financial impotence. That we have a sense of financial impotence. And the reason why he uses that word is because the experience of shame is so similar to the way that many people feel shame about sexual impotence. Where you just, uh, impotence, where it's like you feel inadequate and, and broken or maybe even stigmatized. Like, I can't share that this is going on. And so what's led to is people struggling financially but never actually saying that they are. Instead, they try to put off this air that things are okay. They try to just remain silent. as a result, the sense of worthlessness, it drives us to, again, try to get more, try to establish ourselves more financially so that we can feel like we have some control over our lives and so that we can feel like our identity means something again, and the cycle just continues. We rashly go into debt into different costs and loans and into these more fragile Mastered by money when it comes to identity. 
in the gospel, things change. Here's Paul again, verse 11. But as for you, O, o man or, or woman of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of of God who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. The good confession, by the way, is when Jesus said he was king. That's essentially, yeah, the good confession is, is the gospel in many ways. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a lot going on this, in this section, and if I was preaching out of 1 Timothy, I would explain the whole section, but I'm preaching on money. So I'm just going to pull out sort of what this section is saying. Basically, what, what, what Paul is saying is that, that in our relationship to money, we should flee anything that's telling us to just go after money for its own sake. Instead, he calls us to devote ourselves to the faith, to take hold of eternal life. That's kind of a weird phrase, the whole idea of like taking hold of eternal life. I think most of us would ask, like, how do I do that? Isn't eternal life the thing that starts after I die or after all things are made new? But what we've seen in Matthew, we've been talking through the Matthew series for a while now, and what we're seeing now is a little bit different. Eternal life isn't just about the length of your life. It's about a certain way of life as well. Life in the new creation won't be wonderful just because it will be long. Life in the new creation will be wonderful because it will be lived under the reign of Jesus. And we can't control the world. We can't make the world and, and the environment around us all, you know, be according to the reign of God. But we can, by following the way of Jesus, take small steps in letting God be king of our lives. So take hold of the eternal life in the gospel. Realize that, that Jesus, by his grace, has invited you into a way of life. A way of life that is of so much more worth than the way of chasing money and resources and finding our identity in those things. Money doesn't, ha in other words, here's what it comes down to. Money doesn't have the authority to tell you who you are. Money doesn't have the authority to make you feel worthless. Money doesn't have authority because it's not our king anymore. The gospel announces to us that in Jesus' suffering, we were given a, new, given a new identity. You are not your income. You are a beloved, adopted child of you are not your utility. You are part of a family. You belong just as much as any other one of us. You are part of a mission now. There's meaning that you have access to, and it's not going to be found in your resources or your income. We do not have to feel a sense of shame as a result of not having enough. Don't let society shame you for something that, that ultimately amounts to just, I mean, just meaninglessness. Don't let society shame you. Find your identity in Christ. Christ is your identity now, the gift of eternity. Finally, we become mastered by money when it becomes our joy. We've spent a lot of time talking about the financial stress of, of living in our time, and I think that's really important. But it would also not be fair if we didn't acknowledge that on a global scale, some of the 
poorest among us, the most financially fragile of our middle class, are richer than, than the vast, vast majority of the folks in, in the world. So a lot of us, we think, I'm not rich because at the end of the month, I, I've basically just paid the basic bills, and there's not anything left over, therefore I must not be rich. And instead, we forget that it's about more than money. It's also about resources. That the standard of living that most of us are living at is just unthinkable. So yeah, we, we might not have a ton of expendable income at the end of the month, but we're like holding the latest iPhone, and we have a gym membership, and we're you know going back to you know a 900 square foot living space, which again is hilarious that that sounds small to us. It's actually enormous globally, and so we're we're living with these with these riches. Another way of illustrating it: in in 1900, half the American budget was spent on just food and clothing. Now food and clothing take up only a fifth of the average budget. And granted, like healthcare and housing have gone up significantly, but most Americans still expect to have the up-to-date phone, a subscription to a streaming service, a laptop that's capable of being more than a paperweight. We experience financial, fa financial stress, but we do so while like sipping craft beers and, and kind of knowing the difference between Kenyan coffees and Colombian coffees. And we, right? So we're experiencing all of this along with financial stress, but it's important for us to realize where we are. We enjoy all these things, and, and yet we still feel discontented. We still feel discontented. And there's been studies about why that would be. The Atlantic released a video a little, bit, a little while ago where they talked about the experience of online shopping. That anytime you shop, anytime you go to a store, which again, here in the United States, we have a very consumeristic society, so we're doing this a lot. So anytime you go to a store, and, and purchase something, you get a small dopamine hit, but when you shop online, there's actually an extra one. So like, when you actually have the moment of like, purchase, like there's a, f a, a really tiny flood of dopamine that actually gets released in your brain, and then when the package arrives, they've done studies, the dopamine happens again, which is part of the reason why we love online shopping, because it's highly addictive. <laughs> dopamine addicts you to stuff. Like, when they want a rat to hit a button repeatedly, what chemical do they put in its brain? Dopamine. So, like, we're literally, we're, we're being conditioned. We're being conditioned by, by, like, the marketing culture around us and by online shopping and all these other things. We're being conditioned to repeatedly return to this source for pleasure. That's why the rat keeps hitting the button. Because every time it does, that dopamine hit is pleasurable. But here's the thing about dopamine, it doesn't last long, and the more you're exposed to it, the less pleasure it is. And so as we buy, as we go to stores, as we shop online, and we're getting these repeated dopamine hits, with each one that we get, it becomes less pleasurable. And yet we're being trained that, hey, if you want to feel good again, purchase something. still deeply discontented. We turn to money for, for our joy. By money, I mean all the things that it buys and all these arguments we make. We turn to those things for pleasure, and the more we have in general, the more discontented we actually think that our mental health would stabilize if we had 
open pit so crudely, what's going on inwardly, the more we have, the, the more it actually takes to come out of us. It's fascinating as well that, that the more we have, studies are actually showing that the more we have, the less we feel like we have to give. So there are actually two studies that were done. One was by something called the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which is just studies charitable giving in, in the United States. The other one was through the University of Notre Dame. But both studies confirmed the same thing. Since the Great Recession, so that's 2008, giving has gone down dramatically, mainly among the wealthiest populations. So most people between 2006 and 2012, those making over 20,000 gave about 5% less. So they, they were pulling back their giving. Yet what's fascinating to me is that in those same years, those making under 25 grand, their giving went up 17%. In other words, the poorest within our society started to give more the less they had. Those with the most in our society gave less. And so I think this, this reveals something about, about sort of the, the reality of having so many goods, so many possessions. They don't make us feel more satisfied. They make us feel like we still need more. And so we're not going to give, we're not going to be generous if we have this much because we actually feel like we have so much to lose. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And so when you're under pressure, what do you do? You start to gather your resources in and protect them. Possessions, experiences, comforts, they don't satisfy us spiritually. Money is not our joy. The truth is that over time, the more we... The more we have, the more it takes to satisfy us. And so the cycle just continues. Here, here's what Paul says happens as a result of the gospel. This is him addressing the rich of his age, which I think what he's about to say applies to, to many of us in this age. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything we enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's nothing morally wrong with being rich. There's nothing morally wrong about that. Riches aren't sinful, they're just dangerous. And in our age, most of us are experiencing What would happen if we truly believed that in Christ we have a store of wealth that far exceeded anything we could accumulate in terms of possessions or funds or experiences? What if we had been given a gift that was worth more than all the money we could make in one lifetime? That's how Paul sees the gospel. In Christ, we who are rich will still be rich if we lose everything. When Paul had to content himself with only food and clothing, he was still rich. He'd been given a kingdom. He had been given forgiveness. He'd been given a way of life. God had given him a gift of incredible generosity. We're talking about grace. I used to work in nonprofit, and in nonprofit, you, you, yes, you encounter many, many people who are in material poverty. You also you know, meet a number of people who are very poor, right, because they want to support the, the nonprofit. And I was struck 
by just the exceeding generosity of, of, of a couple of them that I got to meet in person, some of the, the, the bigger donors. And it's always amazing when you meet some, someone, like, like some of the people I'm thinking of, when they gave, they just had this attitude of joy and this attitude of, like, take this, you know, this is ultimately nothing now, right? Like, like they, they have this ability to just to, to give and not sense that, you know, their income and their possessions and everything is going to be totally depleted because they're, they're wealthy and they're existing as a, as a wealthy person. They have this ability to just be free with their wealth. That's the experience of every Christian. That's the experience of every Christian. That no matter what we give, we will still be rich. Because money isn't our joy. Whatever we lose, whatever we give, it isn't truly, ultimately costing us anything. We've been given an incredible gift of forgiveness and inclusion in the family of God, the gift of, of knowing that there will be a good ending to the end of history and to the end of our lives. It's a gift that frees us to be generous. If money is not our master, then it becomes our servant. It becomes like this tool that we use to extend God's kingdom, to celebrate the victory of Christ, to throw big meals, to be hospitable to those around us. Money becomes a gift to us, a gift on top of the ultimate gift. And so we, we neither take it for granted, nor do we hold on to it too tightly. We steward it well because it's a gift that we've been entrusted with, but we don't hold on to it as though it's our lifeline because Christ is our lifeline, and so we can give it away. But when it's taken away, we don't feel like our life When the gospel shapes our view of money, it always ends inevitably in gratitude and generosity. The way that the gospel shapes our view of money and resources is it makes us grateful. And grateful people give. We become generous toward others because God is generous toward us. And again, you know, for many of us in this room who are experiencing the financial fragility that we talked about earlier, it's like, well, I feel deeply grateful for the gospel, but I don't have any money to give, right? I think we should think about this in the bigger context. It's not just about the expendable income at the end of the month. It's about being hospitable in your home. It's about the resources of your time and the resources of your prayers. And if your home is too small and your funds are too small to, to be hospitable or to give, then support somebody else. This is advice that my wife Ashley just ran into in a, in a book called The Gospel Comes to the House piece. It's a book on hospitality. At the end of the day, God has been greatly generous to us in Christ. And so the first thing for us to do is to experience that grace and to experience the generosity of God and let it change us into generous people. When the gospel changes us, we stop asking, what must I give? And we start asking, what can I give? So each week, I, I want to sort of end on sort of a spiritual practice. Michael, you had to tip me off to this one, and I thought it was great. So what I recommend that we, we do this week as a, as a community is sort of internalize the gospel. Keep spending that time considering the grace of God and, and, and you know, thinking over your sin and the way that God has overwhelmed it by his grace. And out of that that experience this week, something that we could do together is, you know, identify something that you can give up. So for me, it will be coffee, right? I'm at Hansa, like everyone. And that adds up. So 
I think for me it's going to be, I'm just not going to go there this week. I'm going to drink water, right? So, <laughs> um, so give up something this week, whether that's like, hey, this week we're going to eat, like, you know, dried pasta for two nights. And whatever funds would normally go toward, toward eating out or toward, you know, making a, a, a more involved meal, set those funds aside. And you can do this over one week or over two, but once those funds are set aside, spend some time in prayer, you and your family, parents. I, I encourage you to involve your kids in this, especially if they're young. But set that money aside and spend some time in prayer and see how the Spirit leads you to use that money, how the Spirit guides you to be generous with, with those funds. And if that's not something you're adding on to your budget, you're identifying some way that you can sort of, you know, again, you know, if, you're, if you're in the financially fragile season right now, like, eat pasta a couple extra nights or, or don't get the coffee. And, and for those of you who aren't so much in that season, you know, you can apply it to, to where you're at. But identify something that you can sort of give up, make a margin, and then out of that margin, see where the Spirit invites you to, to give, whether that's to, like, the Living Waters organization that provides clean water in, in the Global South or the International Justice Mission. They're doing incredible work on, on ending slavery throughout the world. Or maybe it's just that you notice a need that somebody in your community group has, or they're just discouraged. So you use that extra little margin just to lift their head and encourage them. So that's what I encourage you to do this week out of, out of the, the grace and generosity of God to you to be generous to others. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for what you have accomplished for us in the cross, that you have lavished on us. Paul says in Ephesians, you've lavished on us these good things, your generous grace, the grace has been lavished on us in Christ, that, that in love you have adopted us as your children, that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus, and that you've given your spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance that is to come. I pray that we would live like, like trust fund kids in some way, where no matter how, uh, how, how thin things are right now, how, how much we're struggling now, we would remember that the inheritance is coming in Christ, and it is more than we can imagine, and it is more than enough. So I pray, Lord, that we would feel like we live like people who have nothing to lose, that we would, we would live out of generosity to, to, to use our funds to extend your kingdom, to use our homes to extend your kingdom, that our tables would become places where, where our, our neighbors encounter Jesus. Truly, our, our countercultural, I don't know if that's the right word or not, but that you would change us into people who, who truly run against the grain of American culture because money has not mastered us. Christ has. So I pray that through that generosity, through our ability to say no to things that are good, even good, to, to pass up on good things, so that we can create margin in our budget for the sake of the kingdom, I pray that that would become a witness here in Lake County where we have literally some of the wealthiest people in the world and some of the poorest in America. I pray, Lord, that it would be a, a witness to not us uh, and not to a works-based righteousness, but to the glory of the gospel. Lead us, Lord, to, to not find our security in anything in the world that we can find in. Lead us, 
without trying to identify um, anything worldly and saying, you'll all be ashamed or pride or whatever they see that I'm trying to identify. I pray, Lord, that the joy would not be finding that in people, but that we would find it in you. Love you, Lord. Thank you for the gospel.